Welcome to the Econ Dev Show. We explore the strategies, ideas, and insights that are driving economic development forward into the future. You'll hear new insights from passionate EDs about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from attraction and retention experts about how to apply actionable strategies inside your EDO. We'll help take your organization, your community, and your career to the next level. Here's your host, Dane Carlson. Welcome back to the Econ Dev Show. Today, I'm here with Scott Graves. Scott is a managing partner of Epic, that is the Exponential Property Investment Co-op and founder of SM Graves Associates. They develop housing solutions, keeping neo-retroism in mind and solving challenges in rural and urban parts of Massachusetts, Maine, and Vermont. Scott, welcome to the show. It is an absolute pleasure to be here with you, Dane. It is an honor to have you here. I read your description, and honestly, I have no idea what some of those words mean. So can you walk <laughs> me through sort of what that all means? Well, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. This idea of neo-retroism, which came to my partner, Ethan DeSoda, and I from um, one of his mutual partners and, and business associates, um, as it were, from Texas, J.D. Lee. Um, it's the idea of um, one of the th things we're really uh, um, bullish on is, is uh, village development, density, creating density, and doing so across um, as wide a socioeconomic spectrum as you can in one place. That is to say, to create housing across a wider socioeconomic spectrum. Um, sort of the, the opposite of what we've done since post-World War II, which is to isolate people in neighborhoods largely based on socioeconomics, uh, what, um, what they like to call at uh, strong towns, you know, the, the great suburban experiment. So when you talk about villages, you're talking about residential and commercial all intermixed in a very dense small environment? Is that what we're saying? It, it, it often can. Um, if we think about uh, the traditional downtown or urban neighborhood where you've got both live and work amenities, um, people can walk or bike as much as possible to those amenities, right? They don't um, live a lifestyle that's dependent on the car. That is certainly uh, what most of us think of when we're thinking about, say, a, a village, right? Sure. Um, the level of density and the level of or the broadest spectrum of amenities really has to be put into context. When we talk about a village, we talk about it in the broadest way possible. So I'll give you a direct uh, example of that. Uh, in the work we do, particularly in the state of Vermont, which is a rural state, uh, we've got a project right now, which will involve the development of both the, the um, restoration of a some 200-year-old sawmill but also on site, we'll be adding a number of accessory dwelling units that will incorporate both a living amenity and a small work space amenity for each unit. And, um, and we're building their community. It's basically a 10-unit ADU property in all. So this is on a very small scale. But in a place like Vermont, the idea of a village doesn't necessarily always mean 300 units of housing across that broad socioeconomic spectrum that I just mentioned a moment ago. Sure. So it really has to be put into context. What is appropriate given the physical environment? Uh, is it urban versus rural? And, uh, and, and by and large too, what is it that for amenities 
uh, or for usefulness that the local people wish to have. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, I think I can understand that. So why post Second World War, we suburbanized across the country? Why did that happen? And, and, and why this sort of movement back away from that? What are the problems with that? So um, I'll give the simplified version. I mean, for one, um, decisions that were made during the war um, made American dollars both cheap and plentiful. And before World War II here in the United States, um, decisions were made uh, make that, that you know, we wanted to be a car-centric place, right? People were going to depend more on their car. And uh, we were sold this idea by and large on the, uh, you know, the idea that, um, you know, it would be freedom, right? Freedom of choice. Right. You, can, you can transport yourself over longer distances when you want to. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, this is attractive. And of course, the car itself became part of our popular culture too, right? There's those of us that, you know, love cars, love vintage cars or a particular kind of car. Um, it's, it's really worked its way into the fabric, the culture of the country. Um, and, um, but one thing that by and large was not figured out in the effort to suburbanize uh, was, can suburbia really pay for itself? Uh, that is to say, particularly, can it pay for all the maintenance that's going to be required for all those miles of highway, miles of sewer and water lines, and the miles of just broadly, you know, the infrastructure it takes when we spread everything out, where we work is in one place, where we live is in another, where we recreate might be in a third, and, and that kind of map, right, that we drew over the last 70 years. And here we are now uh, where financially, by and large, that has run its course. And so we're dealing with all of the problems that come when that coupled with other economic factors, um, you, you, after a while, it becomes hard to deny that, um, that everything that we've been doing in the built space, in the built world that we live in, uh, can't pay for itself. Yeah, that is a challenge that a number of communities, or maybe all communities, eventually have to deal with. They build out infrastructure for residential neighborhoods, and all those pipes, all those roads, all that electrical lines, all that infrastructure isn't doesn't pay for itself after some number of years. The people living in those neighborhoods, flushing those toilets, it all wears out and needs to be replaced and repaired. And the property taxes on that doesn't pay for it. Whereas commercial um, operations, they tend to be positive on the cash flow side for the community. So you're saying we built out all of this infrastructure for our suburban houses. And now we're at the point where everybody's realizing this doesn't quite work going forward. And so we need to figure something else out. And this is, this is the solution you say. Um, yeah. And I don't think there's any ever any one solution, but I will say this underlying everything that we do at Epic is the idea that we live in an ecosystem, right? Um, that is to say uh, that we have to think of our challenges and the stuff that's working in the greater context of all of the commercial and residential activity, right, that's happening in a given place, okay, and so and 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 also the culture of a place too. A lot of what's 
sort of begun this movement uh, that's been happening for some time where people are saying, you know, I don't want the three or four bedroom single family home on acreage. I want something different. That's a cultural decision, right? And so we want to take into account the fact that many people have decided that they don't necessarily want the suburban life. And that's not to put down the people who still want that life, because there are places where it still works, if you will. And so 100 years from now, we're going to look back and there will be places where that kind of development pattern, um, it maybe is still working. But by and large, um, it doesn't necessarily work to hollow out your local downtown area, uh, you know, sort of off balance um, in favoring, you know, the more uh, suburban development. Um, we've got to get back in a lot of places to um, to organic growth in the commercial sector, right? And doing so in places where you have density so that, um, because, it, you know, the, the concept of the, um, you know, tax rate, uh, tax revenue per acre ratio, right? right? That you have more resilient neighborhoods and you have urban cores, even in small communities that have small downtowns that by and large per acre, those areas can pay for themselves. In most cases, of course, they're subsidizing all of that suburbia that they're surrounded by. So by optimizing those places, or in the case of even new development, by building new development that mixes people um, living and working in a relatively small area, in a dense area, and offering them, um, you know, a wider, like I said before, a wider spectrum of socioeconomic opportunity. So one of the things that suburbia also did, a consequence of that is that in urban areas, as people that could, that had the means to do so mid-century, left their urban neighborhoods, right. those urban neighborhoods were by and large left with people who didn't have a choice. And sure. one of the things that helps build personal wealth, of course, is your personal network. So if you live in a neighborhood where, you know, across the street is the president of the local university and two doors down is the local, you know, bank president and, you know, your mom and dad are deeply rooted in this network of people who someday are going to help you as well build your your personal career and your wealth, all good, right? But if you live in a neighborhood where you've got just as smart and intelligent people, but all of those resources and all of those positions, right, they don't exist in that neighborhood. You're, you're relegating uh -oh. people in that neighborhood, by and large, to a lack of, of uh, the human capital, right, the human resources that they're going to need to be able to achieve their own entrepreneurial or just their personal career goals. Gotcha. So, that so we're trying to build neighborhoods that actually bring these people together, but mm -hmm. not in, in a completely, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not in a, in a, in a, um, uh, not in a sort of fake way. Right. But right. But not an create, artificial way, not an artificial way, not an insincere way, nor on the economic side, you know, neighborhoods that would be considered, um, not resilient. Right. Because again, because they just can't generate the municipal tax revenue that is necessary to maintain them long-term. And that's a little different. Most developers really don't care about the municipal tax revenue opportunity for a given right. community. And conversely, in my, my, my sort of personal and brief foray into working in municipal economic development, we were not encouraged to really worry about you know, the tax revenue. Uh, we were largely encouraged to give away uh, tax revenue in the form of subsidy, or TIFFs and so forth, right? 
Um, mm -hmm. There's plenty of opportunity for folks um, to get assistance in building their businesses here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, where I reside, and in most states. And I'm not denigrating that regime entirely, but there is a way to sort of balance that out, I think, and to create real organic uh, tax growth, and particularly on the commercial side is where we should be doing that. Why? Because why, if we don't, we're always going back to the same residents and we're raising their property taxes. And in a world where a big part of our population that's growing is on a fixed income because they've retired, mm -hmm. all of these things sort of merge and create real problems. I, I think it's partially a responsibility of those of us in development and all of us that are citizens to really keep this in mind when we're building our own businesses. Sure. That makes sense. So let's talk about this from the economic developer's point of view, right? And you've sort of touched on that and you fit on that, but how do, you know, very explicitly, how do the, how do housing developments address local economic development challenges? Because we've, we've all got a variety of issues the big issue now, of course, is housing. We don't have the workforce because we don't have the housing. So how do you, as an economic developer, how do you work towards that? How do you build housing for a variety of socioeconomic levels while at the same time, how do you do, what advice do you have? I guess that's my question. Yeah, the, the, um, the work that we do is, is a little different. And the predominance sure. of not just developers, but the entire ecosystem of development doesn't necessarily fully encourage what I'm talking about, right? I recognize right. that. Right. Um, and it would be the opposite, right? Um, it, it, it largely encourages, uh, and if you're in my neck of the woods, about an hour west of Boston, um, it is quite easy. In fact, you can, you can get largely um, really lucrative subsidy to build uh, affordable housing. Um, not, and this isn't to, to, you know, put down folks that need affordable housing, um, because it's also part of the mix. But, uh, as, as you know, the, 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 this idea of middle market housing, right. The missing right. middle, there's, there's a missing middle because there's a middle class that's being eroded, right. Not just housing, but, uh, but the housing component of that is very important. Um, and, uh, my, I guess my advice to economic development, uh, folks is, right now we've got this real focus on, on largely a top-down approach, right? So these are the grants, these are the programs, these right. are what I can offer people. And so the discussion by and large always begins with that instead of beginning with this, according to the data from my neighborhood, from my city or town is telling me, this is what's desirable, you know, City Hall desires this. The people desire this because we've done the, the data collection on exactly what it is the people want. And how do we, how do we get there, right? Um, that's a different approach. It's very much a bottom-up approach. And it's also one that should be driven by data and not by passion projects, right? So um, whether right. you're a, a private investor, um, we still get investors all the time who say, look, you know, I, I like, I like the regime. I like the strategic plan of your investment fund. However, I just want to make sure that you're going to put my money into, you know, this neighborhood or this community, this town. Um, if the town doesn't meet our scorecard, right, we're not going to invest there. We're not 
making our investments based on passion projects. Same should go for economic development personnel in any given city or town. Where's the best opportunity? But in the first place, we're looking for those opportunities that are responsive to the neighborhood and they're responsive to the citizens in general in that community and not first and foremost responsive to grants or tax subsidy or et cetera. Okay. Hard to do because there's a lot of inertia towards the other way. Sure. But if your strategic plan starts in the first place uh, from a flawed basis, then um, I don't I don't see how you can expect it to, to an outcome that you're going to want, that you're going to desire. How do you go to your community and ask those questions and get the right answers? Because I think that would be a real challenge in are are you asking as a citizen? How does a citizen? A, yeah, how would a citizen do that? Um, a citizen has to be committed to being engaged. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, your community has a department of economic development or mm-hmm. uh, planning and community development. You know, whatever, pick your poison, whatever the uh, right. whatever the the staffing there is. And if not, there's always somebody there, right? There's a city council committee or right. uh, select board. Um, personnel, et cetera, the mayor, if there's uh, if it's that kind of city government setup, um, you, you have to directly engage with your elected officials and with your bureaucracy and make it known. Everybody has a, a, a system, right? There's some kind of public comment period or right. there's, you know, um, in the best of situations, you have personnel in those positions that love to get phone calls that respond to emails right away. Um, many of us do not live in that environment. It's a little more challenging, but I do think it really starts with people not divorcing themselves from the, uh, from civic engagement. They really have to be the squeaky wheel and make their opinions known. Um, another way is yourself to join, you know, your zoning board of appeals, uh, a planning committee, conservation department commit, you know, uh, a board. Um, there's a variety of ways for citizens to be volunteers and get directly involved in influencing how the development pattern moving forward in their city or town. And all of us in economic development, I, I, I'm sure you would agree, Dane, um, it's not so easy to always get all the volunteers you need to have them engaged and educated on the subject matter. We desperately need in almost every corner of the country, more people from the citizenry getting involved in, in development patterns and in, in, in developing their cities and towns. Right. Right. And, but then you run up against the not in my backyard folks, the folks who, you know, don't want develop, they want the status quo. And, you know, have you come up against that? And if so, how have you overcome that? We come across it as developers plenty. Um, And, um, and in many cases, we, we just simply walk from projects. Now, everybody's a little different, but we do believe over the long haul um, that, um, you know, we, we will get um, groups of citizens who say, you know, no matter what, no matter what the advantages, you can tell us the economics are going to work more in our favor. We simply don't want this in our neighborhood. We walk. We feel like there's enough opportunity throughout our region that um, that we really need to focus on prospecting 
and then converting in places that are dedicated to seeing the project through and fully recognize the benefit to the tax municipal tax revenues, but also, you know, the cultural benefit, all of the benefits that come from the kind of um, development that we want to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now that's us. Um, other cases, uh, developers will say, this is where we're building and it doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, again, if you're dedicated to encouraging a bottom-up approach to development as opposed to a top-down, right? you know, top-down also includes, you know, you're getting subsidized housing. You might not want it. You might not need it, but that's what you're getting. And, uh, right. and, and that's part of the problem, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. But so it is real. We it? have to balance sorry. out, Dane. Uh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt you. We have to balance okay. out. It's a, it's a cultural problem, isn't it? I mean, it is right. This idea that, well, we want expanded tax revenue. Uh, we want a healthier community, but, um, but we don't want new neighbors. We don't necessarily want new business downtown. We don't, you know, everyone's got a different idea about how to get there. Um, I think we have to remind ourselves as citizens that, um, you know, a dynamically changing city or town, you know, the vast majority of our history as a country, um, things were changing all the time. So you've got to balance out NIMBY. You've got to also balance out preservation with, you know, what, how do we define those things? Right. Like, but it all starts with a conversation and, and that's what I see too little of, um, at the municipal level throughout the country. Um, part of that's politics, but it's also, you know, people get set in their sort of their list of priorities and they don't feel as though they wish to express them, uh, to others, nor do they, um, or, you know, by limiting conversation, they feel like they might get what they want. And we kind of have to get over that. There has to be a lot more conversation about what is it as a community we want, so that we have better outcomes. Sure. So how did you get into this? What drove you into this? Uh, so uh, my chosen profession was uh, music, music performance and music education. I have a, uh, uh-huh. a music business degree, undergrad music business degree from the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And, um, and started uh, the early part of my career as a touring uh, performing artist a guest conductor. I did a lot of teaching under various, um, uh, situations and, um, and from an early age, just was lucky, had a great opportunity to tour the United States extensively. And, um, and prior to doing so, uh, in my late teens really had a, a very Jack Kerouac oriented, view of what I was about to see as I went into the country, this romanticized version of the great, you know, industrial, you know, Buffalo, Cleveland, right. you know, Youngstown, Ohio. And, and, and the first time I got out there and saw those cities and Flint, you know, and Pittsburgh and heading into the South, um, you know, uh, it, there were a lot of communities where I said, wow, you know, what happened? It was a lot different than I expected. Uh, lots of deindustrialization. And then lots of redefining, though, too, at the same time, particularly I'm thinking of places like Greenville, South Carolina, for the first time I went there and, and Atlanta. Right. And I couldn't have articulated to you then um, what uh, what I'm doing now or or the priorities or you know definitions of, you know, economic development and so forth. But there was something that 
became deeply ingrained in me and that has led as an adult um, making the transition from, you know, strictly working in the entertainment business over to doing the kind of stuff we're doing now. Interestingly enough, my partner, Ethan DeSoto, um, he originated uh, from Flint, Michigan. We did not know each other back in those days, but both of us have had um, pretty extensive experience, particularly in personal experience in uh, industrialized communities. And being able to personally experience both the triumphs and some of the challenges that come with deindustrialization. And that has influenced, I think, greatly our personal set of, of um, priorities in building the business and the investment fund that we've been doing the last couple of years. So um, going forward, as the U.S. sort of pulls back from sending all of its manufacturing to China and begins to potentially reindustrialize. How do you see that affecting things for you? You know, it's all first and foremost to me, a question of how we go about doing that. Okay. As an example here in New England, we're increasingly making a higher priority on renewable energy. That has been mm-hmm. a transition we've been making for decades now. Um, the question though is, is can we start to make a shift and create more opportunity for entrepreneurship across a broader socioeconomic spectrum in in those uh, sectors, right? Um, Namely, I'm thinking right now, offshore wind has become a big thing. Um, And regardless of sort of the limitations, right? You have to, at the end of the day, there's a certain amount of investment capital you need to have access to in order to get into offshore wind. I recognize that. But I, I think what I'm trying to say is, much of our uh, entrepreneurial opportunity goes to a very small group of people with a whole lot of capital, right? And this is due to the the financial schemes under which we invest in things. So I think reindustrialization, especially in key sectors, Dane, um, I'm thinking first and foremost, uh, uh, microchips, you know, things that are in everything to keep major systems working. Um, as we've seen, it is not a resilient system to have one or two factories in one country to make the world's microchips, nor is it very resilient for a country to have most of its processed food um, be processed uh, outside the country, um, nor producing any of its uh, good organic food, right? There are certain systems that need to be decentralized, but as part of that, we have to create more entrepreneurial opportunity for a wider breadth of our population. If we continue to have a very small portion of the population take all of the newly economic activity that'll come from whether it's reindustrialization or any other sort of, you know, um, changes to the uh, industrial landscape here in the country, that's a problem that will not help us solve the very real issue of, a, of the missing middle. Not, you mm-hmm. know, we're not talking housing, mind you, we're talking about the missing middle class. Right. Wow. Um, We've jumped around been, on the subject. This is yeah, like- this has been very informative. I came into this not really understanding at least how you described yourself, but now I, I feel like I have a grasp. So if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to make contact with you? Well, if they go to smgravesassociates.com, 
They will find information on my consultancy and also on our media project. And they can find podcasts dealing with a whole host of subjects, uh, most of which you and I have just talked about there. And that, that project's called End the Media Project. And, um, and specifically to the real estate development that we do, uh, the best place to go is exponentialpropertyinvestments.com. Perfect. We'll include those in the show notes, but this has been fabulous. Um, I like it when I, when I have a guest that, that explains something that I haven't thought about or not even, I, I want to say from the a, a perspective that I haven't, that I didn't even realize existed. So this has been uh, insightful. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here talking with you, Dane. And I, I just want to point out lastly to uh, your listeners, um, don't get overwhelmed and stay hopeful. All of the things that we're talking about um, do not require you to do something about everything. You can insert yourself into the solutions where you see fit and never give up hope because everything we're talking about are, are man-made challenges that we've created and they can all be solved with our intellect and our good that, intentions. That, that is some excellent uh, American optimism. That is, that's phenomenal. <laughs> it's that New England can-do spirit that, that uh, drove um, the original industrialization and development of the United States. So phenomenal. I'd, I'd like to think so. And I just want to shout out uh, to your neck of the woods too, Dane. Um, just, you know, Texas, Galveston in particular, just a wonderful part of the country, uh, a powerhouse to our modern economy. And, you know, keep up the good work down there. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Anyway, good to have you. I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. You've been listening to the Econ Dev Show with Dane Carlson. If you're an economic developer who never stops learning, for more expert strategies, fresh insights, and new ideas to take your career, organization, and your community to the next level, visit us on the web at econdevshow.com.